Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, and I'm so happy to be back uh, with a guest who I truly value and I believe brings a ton of incredible information as he's already appeared once upon a time discussing men's health. And before I even get to our guest, Seb, welcome back. How's it going? Oh, man, I, I always learn from the same guest. Every time he opens his mouth, he's dropping bombs and pearls and excellence. So can't, can't be more excited today. Well, without further ado, Bruce, welcome back to Mortar and Pestle. It's great to see you and as well um, hear from you again on an amazing topic, which we label as men's health. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. I enjoyed being with you the first time we did this and uh, happy to be here, happy to share as much information as I can in, in this podcast. So I'm ready to discuss any issue that you feel is appropriate for it and we'll go from there. Well, one thing, Bruce, that stands out to me is that you're probably one of the only people that I've spoken to in regards to almost recording a podcast before the podcast even starts. Um, I ask you generic <laughs> questions and you dive into to topics and not that I want to stop you because I love learning from you as well and, and knowing that this is definitely an area that is passionate to you, to you specifically, a member of our clinical services team for a very long time. And, and this is an area that is probably considered your biggest forte and, like I said, one of your passions. So the last time we had a chance to sit down and record, we, we discussed just general men's health, talking about compounding opportunities, uh, a few nuggets or pearls that we deemed as relevant. I think today we're probably going to go in a, not a different direction, but dive into some of the more the literature that has been quite vital and very important on the forefront in regards to how you also manage questions and handle questions in regards to drugs that are being prescribed and just the overall nature of the impact that it could make on an individual when we are looking at things like testosterone and other, other markers that are considered highly critical. So, you know, just maybe I'll, I'll leave it up to you in regards to the last time we had a chance to speak was probably over a year and a half ago. Um, what are some of the, the key literature pieces that have popped that you realize uh, probably our listeners can get a ton of value in and in an area that everyone should probably be looking at right now? Well, one of the biggest areas of research interest over a long time has been testo uh, prostate cancer. And of course, as you know, the fear for many years was testosterone caused prostate cancer. Doctors believe it. It was stated uh, clearly in literature. You got to be really careful because this stuff causes prostate cancer. And when people really got down to the original research, they found out the original research stating that was very, very limited. It wound up being essentially one patient. And so there's been a great deal of patient uh, of, of research since then looking at what testosterone does and does it cause cancer or is it really protective? So there's actually literature that has come out, I'd say in, within the last five to seven years, showing that uh, testosterone can actually be somewhat protective in many patients and it really doesn't seem to cause prostate cancer. Uh, what does cause prostate cancer is, is really somewhat complex 
And the, the literature I see actually suggests that uh, what we th thought originally about estradiol, there may be truth to estradiol's involvement, but how you, how you go about uh, modifying that so you don't get it is very, very challenging. For example, uh, we may have t talked about estrogen receptor beta and alpha in the past. It, it could come up easily in uh, men's health, could come up easily in female health. But in general, we say that uh, estrogen alpha does a lot of the uh, hardworking work, but it also is inflammatory. We can say that uh, estrogen receptor beta is anti-inflammatory. So in, in various systems in the body, we have these competitive uh, struggles here between alpha and beta. And both of them want to work. And for a, you know, a health, healthy person, they both work. In the prostate, one of the things I read several years ago, I, I find fascinating. I don't find, a, haven't found people who can get quite around it, but we talk about estrogen receptor beta being protective. And in men who develop prostate cancer, estrogen receptor beta stops working. So it seems to be protective and then it stops working. So what is that difference? I haven't been able to find literature that says, what is the change that makes beta stop working? Also, there seems to be a, a, a greater conversion of testosterone to estradiol in the prostate through same system we have in other parts of the body, aromatase. And why does that happen in prostate cancer? That's one of the unknowns. You know, why, why does it happen? Why does the estrogen receptor beta stop working in the prostate when it has been protective? And why in men with prostate cancer would, be a, would there be a greater conversion to uh, estradiol? So there's literature out there, but the greater part of the literature in the last 10 years has stated that testosterone does not cause prostate cancer. And uh, I, I've cited one, lit, one article many times uh, when I'm talking with our members. And that was um, a very courageous study by done, done <clears throat> by several noted urologists, one of whom I know personally because he is at Baylor University in Houston and he's actually spoken for a PCC on occasions. In any instance, what they did was, as I say, very courageous. They took 13 men who were newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, but as yet untreated. And they used testosterone on these men. At the end of the year, there was no increase in PSA, no uh, uh, great progression of, of the um, cancer. And that, that article has been out and published for many years. Uh, there was also uh, some of the same group working again, to see if testosterone is protective and how can you actually demonstrate that. So I'm not saying I know for a fact that it is protective, but I will say that there's more literature in the last 10 years supporting the idea that testosterone is good for the prostate than suggest that it is not. And I think that this is a really important discussion because um, and there's a couple of background pieces that I'm just going to share. Number one, if you're looking for any of these reference literature pieces, Bruce has developed a massive document on men's health. 
Um, and we will discuss that document number in just a heartbeat. But really and truly, if you're looking for any of this literature that Bruce is discussing, you can find it there. He's done an amazing job of compiling all of this literature. But the second part to this is it is a seismic shift because that was something that I learned is too much testosterone, yep, male prostate cancer, and, 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 so avoid at all costs. So for those of you who are just hearing about this, um, it is worthwhile doing the discussion and the reading the paper, more importantly, but also that leads into the desperate need for appropriate monitoring because that's probably the biggest second point to this discussion is adequate doses of testosterone without this significant conversion to estradiol. And so I, I, I think that that's gonna be the next part that I, I'm gonna need you to kind of speak on is the monitoring parameters that we- I'll be happy about. to do that. Uh, yeah. uh, one, one of the things I will say is that in the Men's Health C4 online course, uh, I spent a lot of time in the second book talking about screening and monitoring. Screening and monitoring. What, what do you do in screening to determine whether or not this patient is a good candidate for testosterone therapy? So they're both physical signs, patient assessment, and their laboratory numbers that, that a, a doctor can, can, uh, can read, can study. Uh, many of these have been out for a long time, the laboratory values. So it's important to have a good idea where you are at baseline rather than um, you know, people determining on their own. For example, uh, in the past, I heard, would hear radio advertisements directing apparently younger men, because that was the audience they were talking to, saying, if you're feeling tired, you're probably low in testosterone. So I think there were a lot of people who maybe were not really good testosterone candidates who saw that it could be the panacea to make them uh, eternally young and actually feel younger than they, than they are. So screening is important. Monitoring is very important. Um, you know, to, to your point about estradiol, you should have, in the baseline numbers, you should get testosterone and estradiol, and both should be monitored. But that's not all that would be monitored. So estradiol would be monitored, hemoglobin and hematocrit. Uh, the urology uh, organization, national, uh, I don't recall the exact name right now on the, the urology group, but nevertheless, they stress hematocrit numbers. And, and in my mind, hematocrit is greater of greater importance than estradiol. I rarely see estradiol's numbers going up really high unless there is an inc incredible surge in testosterone. For example, the highest testosterone, uh, pardon me, the highest estradiol number I ever heard was like 119, which is over double what most people would consider a high range. So I asked the pharmacist, okay, that is a, definitely a concern, but tell me what is the person, how is the person supplementing? Is the person supplementing, and if so, what? And what they told me was the person was taking uh, injecting two milliliters of testosterone, 200 milligrams per mil, twice a week. So they were dosing it about four times as high as, as what I would normally recommend. And, and so there was a screamingly high testosterone number in the teens, if I recall correctly, it's about 1,500, considerably higher than anybody should ever be looking for. But that patient had an estradiol number of 119. So I think it's important when this happens to try to look and see what is going on with the therapy.
But what uh, I always stress to people is estradiol is important, but hematocrit is probably the bigger thing you want to be sure you're, you're monitoring. Because if a doctor isn't familiar with monitoring and the patient ha has a huge rise in the hematocrit levels, then they could perhaps have a stroke. Uh, and in an early conversation a little bit ago with Mike, he was talking about seeing a, a, a hematocrit range of least 7 to 51. What some doctors will do is say 52 is the cutoff point. At 52, I'm going to stop you. I may even take, uh, take some of your blood today or have your blood drawn today. Uh, and 54 is a more absolute number for hematocrit. One of the physicians I know, if he has a patient 54 or higher, he has them go right down to the phlebotomist, down to the laboratory, and have blood drawn. So he takes a pint, and then he has a patient come back the next week, and he takes another pint. So in my mind, hematocrit is probably the most overlooked thing we should be looking at, and a very key issue we should be looking at. And hemoglobin, and of course, uh, estradiol certainly does have its upper limits. Yes. And, and I just want to kind of refresh, because there's a few people who've been out of school for a little bit, and we're talking about a hematocrit, and, and people are like, well, okay, the importance of a hematocrit, but what does it measure? And then what are the implications of these high hematocrits? You're saying drawing blood. Yeah. Okay, well, how does that solve the problem? Well, what is the problem? And inherently you said stroke, but what is that mechanism? I think this is a key piece because a lot of people just hear it and they parrot it, but they don't necessarily understand yeah. the detail. It is right. Uh, as you know, uh, it would be part of a CBC. So a CBC is a very common uh, laboratory assignment and you get red blood cells, white blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit. So hematocrit is involved in red, making red blood cells. So with testosterone, you can literally get a, a cell that is too rich in, uh, uh, too rich in red blood cells, and it, that increases the risk, the possibility of stroke. This is effectively just really thickening the blood. You've got too many red blood cells. It gets gummy and sticky. It's like gum in your veins versus a nice liquid fluid. Right. And it sounds like it's good, but I'm, I'm going to kind of turn it back to these guys who were doing the Tour de France, and they were literally uh, blood doping, and they're adding red blood cells. Literally, their blood was so thick that they stroked out. They couldn't push the blood through, and so the increase in pressure would literally start blowing blood vessels. That's the mechanism. So um, back to the comment, hematocrit, uh, and then hemoglobin, and then the monitoring parameters. We talked about estradiol. Is there anything else that you like to monitor in these patients that you can focus on? Actually, those are the big ones. I, I will say that if you say what, what do you need to look at, you need to look at testosterone total and free. You need to look at um, hemoglobin hematocrit. You need to look at estradiol. But other than that, the, the, you know, it's the same things that any other patient would be concerned. PSA certainly would be one that they would look at. PSA is a kind of a mysterious uh, 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 value. Uh, it, 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 it is not diagnostic. It does in, certainly fun, uh, focus on prostate function, but it can be very confusing and people can get uh, very concerned if they have elevated PSA. And of course, separate to this, we know now that PSA can be elevated for various reasons. Prostate cancer could be, could be one of them, but BPH could be another one. Uh, uh, infection in the prostate, prostatitis could be another one. So. 
these things need to be discussed. And my preference is, uh, while I know many, many practitioners will prescribe testosterone, in, in my view, urologists are those who are uh, best educated to monitor the patient. You know, so you monitor on various things. You monitor, as I say, P BPH. One of the things, Sebastian, as you know, is that beginning around age 50, men should have an annual urological examination. They, I don't know that they do, but there, there are two things that that come of that. One is uh, PSA and the other is the digital rectal exam. And so the doctor is actually palpating to see what does that, what does the prostate feel like? And the very skilled uh, urologist will be able to determine if the uh, the prostate feels differently than it should, or if it feels enlarged, and then decide to take further action. So again, what, what should be monitored, everything should be continued to be monitored. You know, how is the patient doing? You know, the whole, whole point of this is to make the patient healthier. So you, you'd compare, you know, what did you come, why did you do this to start with? What were you looking for? Was it uh, the fact that you just don't feel like uh, you have a libido anymore. Is that one of the things? Well, let's, let's see if that's making a difference. You've lost interest in, in, in the things you used to enjoy. You lost interest in your previous hobbies. And you just, uh, for another one is declining mood. So those are the big things. They're certainly not all that I think a patient should monitor, but those relative to laboratory values. Uh, as far as uh, other things, obviously, we all know everybody should be monitoring their cholesterol, their triglycerides, their hemoglobin, A1C. And uh, BMI is very important. Waist circumference is important. So what I see sometimes is that some people would see that testosterone perhaps can change everything. And uh, as, as pharmacist consultants will often get a sheet in and you're looking at it and I say, oh my gosh, that person is about 60 pounds overweight if they filled out the height and weight. And then what you could do, uh, you get BMI and get waist circumference. And just one key number on waist circumference, if a man's waist circumference is 40, he is obese. He is obese. I don't, you know, of course, a very uh, much a smaller man could be obese, at a, could be obese at a, a lower number. But regardless of the size of the man, if he has a, a waist of comfort of 40, he's considered obese. So the way I look at much of this, uh, I, I'm going to get briefly away from screening and monitoring. But I want to make sure that people understand that uh, testosterone does wondrous things in the body, but there are things we have to be doing also. And I'm not sure that people understand, for example, uh, how a healthy diet can be critical to them, how exercise can be critical to them. I picked up a, uh, an article j yesterday and just about dieting and how pro-inflammatory diets now looked at as a way, as a, a reason that men's testosterone is down. And one of the things that I think is often missing in all of our health discussions is a healthy diet. So we could talk about you need to eat healthy. We can say you need to lose weight. The problem I see is that many patients say, yeah, I know I need to lose weight. Yes, I think I should eat healthier. I don't know what that looks like.
So I think that uh, as we move further on in, in patient care, I think we need to uh, either look at ourselves as increasing knowledge of diet, what we can educate patients on, or consider uh, collaborative arrangements with dietitians or nutritionists. But I think that people often under, they recognize they're overweight, they don't know what to do about it. They think that uh, if they skip a meal, for example, skip breakfast, then that's gonna cause them to lose weight. So in any instance, uh, when I'm, we talk about screening, monitoring, the overall goal is good health. The overall good, whole is a good health. So are you getting closer to that? Is, and is what you're doing with testosterone helping that? Bruce, I, I need to go back to something because I've been sitting here absorbing and every single time I speak to you, I, I learn so, so much incredible information and all this is baffling to me. But um, in regards to a pharmacist approach to all this, whether somebody is on exogenous testosterone, whether they're, they are not, but they are about to, um, how often are most pharmacies truly paying attention to the whole holistic view? or is it simply looking at just dosing markers and then follow up? I'm always uh, excited when I talk to pharmacists who look, takes a more holistic viewpoint. I consider my viewpoint to be relatively holistic in that, in that the idea that monitoring my weight is important to me, exercising routinely is important to me. Uh, trying to find out why those pants don't fit quite as well. Did the pants shrink or what happened there? Uh, to your point, Mike, I, 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 would be I am delighted when I see that pharmacists know the value of a more holistic approach. A more holistic approach means, in my view, uh, it incorporates exercise and it incorporates healthy eating. And uh, a, a concern I have is that we're often only looking at the product we have, the product we have. And I understand that pharmacies uh, you know, need to have a product. I understand pharmacies need to have a profit. But if you're asking me, how could we move into a, a, a fuller health picture? How can we expand our role in healthcare? In my view, uh, dieting, exercise are critical points. This kind of feeds back into the uh, former guests on the podcast with Bobby Muniz and having that whole health program behind him, the supplementation, uh, the check-ins, the whole the whole shebang. And I think that this is a paradigm that we're hearing often repeated. Um, we're in a unique position is that we see our patients more often. We do have these differential tools, but I agree with you. A lot of people think, well, I'm a drugstore, so therefore I sell drugs. I think that it's it's one small aspect to overall health. So I, uh, I love the idea. Uh, I, I help, I don't want to say I help promote. I will say that I, to my knowledge, uh, promoted about pharmacists doing consults, what that looked like. Uh, I presented on that in the year uh, 2000, 21 years ago. And, and uh, some pharmacists were doing it already. And that's actually helped form the basis of my deciding to present on that about the pharmacists as a, healthcare consultant, not only presenting an item to you, but being involved in the greater health picture. And uh, I think that 
and, and what we need to look at and continually is how can pharmacists make money doing that? And, and that is an issue. And uh, the, the idea of pharmacists being certified as practitioners, I think is in, in a few states that is true. I think that is a move in the right direction. But a further move in the right direction in my mind would be that pharmacists could be seen as a primary healthcare consultant, not simply per, a person who is doing a prescription product or selling a nutritional supplement. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think sometimes we overdo it on nutritional supplements. Uh, I saw someone ask me for an opinion and the person had five prescription drugs and clearly, clearly needed an improvement in their health for various reasons, cardiovascular issues, perhaps blood sugar, uh, overweight. But what the person showed me was like five prescription drugs and about 20 nutritional supplements. And I think that the nutritional supplement part, when you get that many items, it's, the body sort of lose track of what is doing what. And, and so a, a concern I have is that this is a really a, a kind of a directed, uh, a directed um, trend where pharmacists are free to recommend products that will make a difference in, in the, in the uh, patient, but not simply continue to overload the patient. I once heard a presentation many years ago and uh, the person was a pharmacist who believed in nutritional supplements and I thought, that's great. But in my mind, I formed the wagon that if I followed every, uh, I formed the idea that if I followed everything, he said I would need a wagon. I would need a small wagon to carry all of the products that were being recommended. So I think that there is a, a, a really a, a important function there that supplements can be very useful. I think though that uh, we have to be careful that we don't simply continue to add supplements to a patient. As I said, I think the body after a while uh, can't handle all of that well. Well, to dovetail that kind of more explicitly is I think we have to use our supplements judiciously, but we have to address food um, first and foremost. So yeah. dietary changes, not just supplement your way out of a bad diet. And I, and I've seen that as well. We're, um, we're on the right page on, we're, we're on the same page as that. Yep. Uh, it, it, you know, what's good health for me? What's good, what is good health for me? What's good health for you? What's good health for Mike? There could be differences in the needs. There could be, but I am of the, uh, as I say, the kind of holistic approach that I'm going to do what I think I was really important to me and dieting is very important. And I was so glad to see this article come out and I hope it gets widely distributed about pro-inflammatory diets because we often simply think only in terms of, well, how much did we eat rather than what did we eat? So Bruce, I, I, we don't mean to change gears completely, but we can probably record this over the next four or five hours talking about so many different things that, that impact hormone levels in males, et cetera. You know, recently, uh, Personally, I've done a lot of research about just overall apnea and the impacts on, on testosterone itself. Individuals that potentially, to your point, might have a higher BMI, might be considered obese, they carry a lot of weight, and then also the analysis of their own sleep cycles. You know, are, are they encountering issues with apnea 
and is there an impact on carbon dioxide levels and impacts on, on just sex hormones in general, which I believe is completely fascinating because we were talking about overall well-being and individuals that potentially could be obese. You obviously see issues with, with testosterone. You see issues with estradiol to your point or whether it's hematocrit or any other marker that you want to look at. But what have you seen in general when we are considering the whole holistic view of health in males and, and knowing that apnea does also have an impact as well? Apnea has an impact whether you're taking uh, supplementing with testosterone or not. Uh, sleep apnea is a, a serious concerns related to cardio related to cardiovascular death. But I don't believe that there is any serious literature anymore that says that testosterone causes apnea. Uh, you know, there are many people I know who, who are now on CPAP machines because they have sleep apnea but who are not using testosterone. So I think there's a, a, one of the things that could, could have happened years ago, how this uh, linked to apnea is that you have causative and, uh, things and you have associative things. So causative means that you did the testosterone and you got sleep apnea. Associative simply means you did testosterone and you got sleep apnea. Are those related? Uh, I had a, a somewhat similar not the same thing, but similar. I had um, a relative tell me that their doctor in Austin was uh, had a great idea that uh, testosterone was causing hypertension. And I said, well, I'm not so sure that testosterone is causing hypertension. And again, there's not literature on it. But what you can see, if you're only looking at what happens to the patient who can easily associate, that's, called, that's because you're on testosterone. So I think that the sleep apnea was more of an associative thing than a causative thing. So I, I have not seen good literature that says it causes it. And in fact, uh, young men, as we all know, who have um, higher testosterone than older men do not suffer from sleep apnea. So it is something that happens. It interrupts sleep at the very least. Uh, but many, as I say, the people I know in sleep apnea who are using CPAP are not uh, using testosterone. So I don't, I, Mike, I don't, I don't mean to just shut it down completely. I'm just saying I don't really see it in a, a, a causative relationship there. No, and, and that's completely fine, Bruce. I, I think in, in looking at the whole picture, I, I was just curious based on my own personal research as well, looking into this and, yeah. and having a, a more of a keen eye on men's health as well, based on a lot of the information that you've shared with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just more of the curiosity around knowing that those that suffer from apnea might also have impacts to their sex hormones as well. Again, I have not seen that. Uh, again, you, 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 you have things that are associated with it, but were they, were they causative? Yes, Sebastian. You to, yeah. Well, I, w I was going to say, you touched upon this with the discussion about hypertension, cardiovascular yeah. disorders. Right, right, right. That is a huge topic of controversy. And I think that you have some insights there as well, which instead of just kind of passing over and moving on, that that's worth a little bit more of a deeper discussion. We were talking about it a little bit before. Well, there, there was a... Uh, something came out. It's I don't recall exact time. Let's just say five years, six years. Uh, the FDA decided that testosterone was associated with cardiovascular deaths. 
I don't know what the literature really supported. I, it was a, a strong thing. What, what came out of it, though, was looking at the literature that uh, was used to say it was caused. And, and so part of the literature showed that the men they were doing were men who actually were not in high testosterone at all. They were actually men lower than 300 and men who are like 260 to 280. So looking in, in that framework, they said, well, the 280 guys had more, uh, more incidence of cardiovascular death than the 260, therefore higher is bad. In my view, they were all low. So we weren't talking about men with high testosterone. We were talking about simply a, a bracket of men and looking at those who had a higher number than others. Also people who are far more uh, knowledgeable than I am responded. And, and one of the, those was a physician up at Harvard who's been uh, you know, passionate, uh, knowledgeable, writing, lecturing for many years uh, up in Boston, uh, from out of Boston. But anyway, he, he actually coined a term, hormonophobia, hormonophobia. <laughs> that, that right. oh my God, <laughs> that, you know, okay, this happened and you were using testosterone, therefore the testosterone must have caused it. I, I know, uh, Sebastian, as a, a consultant, you've gotten many kind of calls I've gotten over the years that said, you know, so-and-so had this particular problem and was that because of the progesterone? And I've gotten many, many calls like that. Was it what the, not thinking, my gosh, you just told me that the patient had been on a progesterone for three years and this happened week before last. So it, it did not seem to be related. But many times people look to hormones as being uh, the, the causative agent when in fact it was just simply uh, something that happened while they were on testosterone. It's a little bit like the cats falling off of the building. You know, everything below six floors, they survive, but somehow or another, magically, <laughs> they survive at 10 stories. No, they just happen to get one cat that survived, and you can't, you can't, you can't elicit that. It's selective data cherry picking for yeah. I think I think a doctor, I think a doctor has to be judicious when he's evaluating a patient. You know, as I, I mentioned a little earlier, uh, for a while, I was he hear, hearing what I thought was silly commercials run by men's health clinics. And it seemed to be suggested that if you just off your game slightly, it must be because you're testosterone. And, and their prime audience was men like in 25 to 35, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think the doctors have to be judicious, uh, do a full assessment of the patient, much like uh, we try to do at PCCA. When someone sends in information, we try to make a full assessment of what they're presenting to us. And I know myself, sometimes I'm looking at these, what the pharmacist in, has sent in, I'm saying, well, you know that there could be other factors involved. You know that the thyroid could be a factor. You know that the blood sugar could be a factor. And you're, somebody is not looking at those things. So I think that uh, if I were a physician, and a patient said, just came in and had been listening to commercials, I need testosterone. I said, well, let's do some work. Let's talk about what, what, how you're feeling. Let's talk about the symptoms you're presenting. And then we're going to take lab work and then we'll make a, uh, a good decision. But I would not rule out testosterone because of fear of cardiovascular issues. On the other hand, if a person had really, uh, AFib and had, uh, clotting issues, uh, then I may be very careful about prescribing anything for them. 
but I, I don't believe, I think it, in other words, if your patient is, is, um, uh, you know, in risk, at risk for mo much of anything, I don't know whether I would go with testosterone for that patient. Not that I think it'd make it worse, but I think you, you just got to be careful in, in a patient who already has multiple risk factors. And as compounding pharmacists, we, we, we need to be educated and be aware that, yes, we are still dispensing the drugs, but we are also equally responsible for the appropriate use of those drugs. So education is key. And now I'm actually going to ask you a very simple question. Bruce, I mentioned the document, but I'm not going to steal any of your thunder. What is the number of that document that you prepared? And I think it's over uh, I believe the document is 94123. I believe the document, but it's on file. And it's uh, you, you can use a keyword references. It's men's health references. I believe it is 94123. Uh, you know, I've given that number out a lot of times. Uh, so I, it may not be correct. But if you're searching and you use men's references, it'll pop up. And I'm glad you brought it up because it is approximately 700 citations in there. Uh, some of them we couldn't get the full text. Many of them we have the full text. But when people ask, for example, do you have any literature on what you're saying? Well, okay, let's take a look and see if I've got some literature on it. For example, uh, one pharmacist I know has asked me at various times about testosterone and prostate cancer. So I'll be happy to give you citations rather than say, here's my opinion. Here is actually medical opinion your physicians can look at. This is uh, sort of slightly aside, but it has to do with a physician talking to the pharmacist about what the physician considered a concern. The uh, patient was using topical testosterone, and I don't know what his free was, but his total testosterone was 750. I use an number of 600, 700, kind of chose that as a, a reasonable number, as an optimal number, not necessarily the number everyone had to have, but above which I didn't think you would get much more bang for your buck, 600 to 700. This doctor apparently found a range that was a little narrower than my the range I generally use, which is 300 to, 10, to 1,000. 300 nanograms per deciliter, up to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. So this patient was at 750, which I would consider a very good number. Uh, whatever chart the doctor was using, he thought that was a little high. Here's what was interesting, and it gets into one of our bases. The pharmacist said, well, we were using uh, 50 milligrams in this base. Now we're going to cut it back to 25. And oh, oh, by the way, I'm making a note. I'm using the PCCA base, a crevice. So we actually lowered the dose, changed it to a crevice. The guy goes back to the doctor, and he's still at 750. He's using less testosterone. So the doctor was concerned, and I said, well, one thing about this is you've actually shown the validity of a Trevis as a base because you're showing that a lower dose, he was getting the same number. But we also talked about the, the values and get, you know, the other things to be looking at as we talked about earlier, hemoglobin, hematocrit, estradiol. And just to clear up something as well, you know, this reference guide that was brought up by Sebastian and Bruce is something that is available directly on PCCARX.com. It is behind lock and key for members. Um, the easiest way to find this, because I know a lot of the individuals 
we'll probably try to find it by document number, et cetera, um, which could also be an internal, in, an internal tagline. But the reality is, if you go to resources on our top bar, scroll down and then you'll see documents. You'll, you'll have a wide array of information that is available across so many different disease states. If you type in men's reference guide or men's health reference guide, there is this documentation that Bruce has put together. It, it is actually a 45 page document. However, to Bruce and Sebastian's point, contains over 700 links. So depending on what you are looking at, depending on what issue you're trying to resolve, um, you're gonna go back to an independent study or independent published article relating to that topic. So it, it's more of a comprehensive, organized manner of delivering that information. I know Bruce, you've, you've spoken about this probably in the last time we met, you brought it up on the Power Hour. If there is one document to fall back on and to use for men's health, in my opinion, it is this one document here because you have everything organized by any type of concern for men's health or any type of challenge. Thank you. So as a, as a separate aside, yes. um, I, I have used this document a number of times and I send it out. Um, but I'm also gonna say, for those of you who are listening and had questions about our formulations with Trevospace or testosterone, our bracketed studies are also there available for you in our Trevospace. And this is going to be a crucial piece to understand about testosterone is more isn't always better. Um, and dosing has to be followed with appropriate monitoring. And, and that was the kind of the crux of the discussion we really wanted to get into is um, making sure you were moving the markers towards health, not just increasing the testosterone numbers. So um, thank you so much again, Bruce. I think you've given me a couple of thoughts on some future podcasts, one of which I want to discuss dietary changes, inflammatory diets, non-inflammatory diets, how clinical pharmacists, especially in the compounding world, can adjust. Um, and then also finding the sort of the best, most crucial supplements and then food changes. So thank you so much for that insight and those um, thought processes that are starting to percolate in my little brain. So always learning from you, Bruce. Always, always, always. And it's always good. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure to be with you. Yeah, you do such a great job, Bruce. And like I said, this podcast alone could have been four hours if we <laughs> if we had the time and the ability to to bother. Yeah, I had a little more hours. water. <laughs> yeah, and see, you're good. You're hydrated now. But um, yeah, it would be amazing to continue this conversation, and, and I know we can because I feel like we only scratched the surface. But thank you for taking the time to be back with us because I know our listeners definitely appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to do it anytime. Well, good to see you. And thanks, Sebastian. And once again, thanks to all of our listeners out there for tuning in as always. As a quick reminder to follow us along, whether it is to obtain information on our website at www.pccarx.com um, to find more information about membership, as well as to log in and obtain some of the documentation that Bruce has referenced in this podcast as well. And as always, to follow us along on social media, whether it's on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Um, as always, don't, for hit, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio, and we'll talk to you soon.